Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Dr. Daniel Gordis, who is Senior Vice President and the Koretz Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Jerusalem, a regular columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and the Jerusalem Post. He's the author of numerous books on Jewish thought and political currents in Israel, and he's a two-time National Jewish Book Award winner. Dr. Gordis joined Shalem in 2007 to help found Israel's first liberal arts college. And just this uh, last few days, I received in the mail uh, we stand divided, the rift between American Jews and Israel, creating a lot of uh, uh, conversation. Just had an op-ed highlighting this book in the Wall Street Journal. So, uh, uh, Danny Gordas, I appreciate you taking time to talk. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure. So, to jump right in, can you illustrate um, a prime example of the major disagreement that is occurring now between major segments of the American Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community, and what's kind of animating that, that rift and disagreement right now? Yeah, so I'll give you two. I mean, one of them is a, a religious one, and one is a political slash military one. So on the religious front, there was the obvious blow up a couple of years ago about the whole mixed davening space at the Kotel, uh, which I was also very upset about and wrote some nasty things about. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the things that I think got confused by American Jews, and again, I thought Bibi handled it very badly and so on and so forth, there was a sense by American Jews that because the Israeli public, so to speak, was not behind, was not getting behind a government that would get behind this, uh, you know, this public's Paris, Paris space, that, America, that Israeli Jews just didn't care about 80% of American Jews or 90% of American Jews who describe themselves as non-Orthodox. Now, what everyone thinks about having a mixed davening space at the Kotel, the important thing that American Jews didn't understand is how little of an issue this really is for Israeli Jews. The vast number of Israeli Jews are either totally chiloni, in which case they really couldn't care less who does what at the Kotel because the Kotel is meaningless to them, or they're dati, in which case they have a very serious sense of what's appropriate at the Kotel. The number of people who actually think that the Kotel does matter, but think that egalitarianism also does matter is a drop of a drop of a drop of a drop, whereas in America, it's a huge, it's a huge piece of the pie, in Israel, it's a non-existent piece of the pie. Therefore, in Israel, nobody really votes on that issue. So what happens is, is when the government understands that it's not an issue that's going to carry any domestic political weight and it decides to abandon a promise that it had made, and one should not abandon promises that one has made. I'm not suggesting that that was an okay thing to do. Americans just take it as a statement that, oh my God, Israel doesn't care about us or Israel rejects our version of Jewish life, and it's not only the rabbinate, and it's not only Bibi, but it must be the populace at large, because nobody seems to be getting all riled up about it, when in fact, it's just not on the radar. Another way of looking at it is the um, kind of the military political side, when the same day that the embassy moved 
from Tel Aviv to Yerushalayim, there was a tremendous amount of, of violence along the Gaza border, and 60-something young Gazans were killed, the vast majority of them by Israeli snipers, which is a tragedy no matter how you look at it. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're left or right, um, Jewish or not Jewish, 60-something young people getting killed in violence is, is a horrible thing. Um, they're all created in God's image, and none of us should take any comfort in something terrible like that happening. But, however, um, the forward then ran a column by Peter Beinart, and he did not write the, the, the headline, obviously. Um, he wrote a column that I didn't agree with, but it wasn't a terrible column. But the, the headline read, Israel's decision to shoot Palestinians should not surprise us, but should still horrify us. In other words, Israel's decision to shoot Palestinians, as if one bright morning a bunch of Israeli commanders get up and say, hey guys, what should we do today? Oh, I know, let's go to the border and shoot Palestinians. Israelis see the border in a very different kind of a way. They understand that there are Jewish settlements, not settlements meaning over the border settlements, but just Yishuvim and Moshavim, places where Jewish people live right inside the Gaza border. The fence is just a chain link fence. I mean, it's the kind of fence that you could have between yourself and your neighbor. There are parts that are actually a wall. There are some parts that are technologically more advanced. But in large parts, it's just a fence. And enough kids push against the fence, the fence is going to fall down and people are going to come in. And then you could have 10 people come in, 100 people come in, 1,000 people come in. And then how does the army protect these people? So the army is longstanding, had a policy. The fence is defended with lethal force all the time. And if 60-something kids are sent by their religious leaders or their families to go attack the fence, terrible, tragic, horrifying things are going to happen. And again, American Jews looked at this as a callous disregard of human life on the part of Israeli soldiers. And Israelis saw this as a tragedy that was brought on by the activity and the actions of the Palestinians. And no left-wing Israeli party called for an investigation. No left-wing Israeli party called for a vote of no confidence, simply because we see these things through very different lenses. What I try to do in the book is help people understand that before we can fix this relationship, like in any relationship between a husband and a, and a, and a wife, or two friends, or whatever the case may be, we first have to learn to see how the other party sees the world through those other people's lenses. Okay, so looking at that um, that disagreement uh, and divide on religious identity and participation and on the ideological, militaristic, political level, if that rift grows into something more of a rupture, does it matter? How serious is it that this divide exists? And what would the implications be, um, if any, uh, down the line? So obviously, you know, the Gemara says that prophecy was given to uh, children and fools and so on and so forth. So I, I don't know exactly what it would be. But here's what I think we all ought to keep in mind, no matter which side of the ocean we live on. Uh, no great Jewish diaspora has lasted forever. Every single great Jewish diaspora has ended, without exception. In other words, uh, the Babylonian exile, which gave us the Talmud, fell in large measure because of the rise of Islam and other forces and so on and so forth. Uh, the great golden age of Spain ended in that particular instance, mostly because of the rise of Christianity and the, and the auto da fe and so on and so forth, the Inquisition. Um, the, the, the great diaspora of Western Europe in the early part of the 20th century ended under horrific circumstances that we don't need to belabor. And there are many other examples. I mean, the diaspora of North Africa ended because of the creation of the state of Israel and, and so on and so forth. Therefore, I think that American Jews who have a sense, we're invulnerable. This diaspora is unlike any other diaspora it ever was. 
ought to have a certain sense of kind of humility about, about history and say, that's exactly what the German Jews thought, and that's exactly what the Spanish Jews thought, and that's exactly what the Babylonian Jews thought. None of us can know for sure. So therefore, Americans just need to know that it's important that there be a place somewhere else in the world that if, God forbid, things here don't go the way that we want them to go, there's a place for Jews to go. But by the same token, no Jewish sovereign entity in the land of Israel has lasted forever either. The first commonwealth ended, the second commonwealth ended. By the way, as you know, they, they obviously land, they end, they lasted each more or less between 80 and 100 years, depending on how you count and what you call the end and so on and so forth. But they didn't go on forever. And now we're 72 years in. It's not like we are a fraction of how long those other things lasted. And I think Israeli Jews need to have a certain sense of humility also and say, well, what if we're not the ones that are going to make it? Don't we want there to be a place somewhere across the world that we're in dialogue with, where our values will help to shape it, where we too could see the future of the Jewish people getting lived out? I just think that the Jewish people's history is such that no Jew has the right to say about another enormous community. And we understand that between Israeli Jews and North American Jews, you're talking about 85, 86% of the Jewish world. Neither of those communities ought to have the, the, the hubris of saying about the other, ah, who cares what happens to them? We should know enough from Jewish history to know that Jewish people do not turn their backs on other Jewish communities. And so I think moving this from a disagreement to a rupture uh, would be playing with fire. And I don't think any of us has the schut to say about some other community of Jews. Uh, we're so disagreeing with them that we, we don't care what happens to them. Hasidim and Mitnagdim didn't marry each other and didn't eat each other's shechita. Um, but they would never have said about the other, I don't care what happens to them. They understood at the end of the day that they were all in the same European boat. And there were not separate camps for Hasidim and Mitnagdim. Um, and there weren't separate camps for Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews. At the end of the day, Jews are going to rise and fall together. And I think we have lost that sense of mutual responsibility, which is very sad for those of us who love studying Jewish history. I think that's uh, that's that, that's very insightful, and I think that that's right um, to, to take that broader historical perspective and a call for humility. So on that front, building off that, what are some of the most important steps that American Jews um, and Israeli Jews can take to, to help to construct a more productive and healthy relationship? I mean, I, bracketing those who are on the extremes, who kind of right. give the finger to each other, those who really do feel a concern here, how, I, how can we engage in this work together? Well, I think together is exactly the right word. I and mean, I think this is not a thing, this is not something that one side or the other can fix. Uh, and it's going to be work. I mean, I think you use two really important words, you know, work and together. Uh, the, it's like in any relationship. When a relationship is in a tough spot, uh, both sides have to work at it and they have to work at it together. And if they're not willing to work or one side's not willing to work with the other, it's basically over and we can't afford that. So here's what I think we need to do. I think we need to give each other, we need to understand each other much better than we understand each other. And I'll give you an example of that in, in one brief moment. And then we have to cut each other a lot of slack from a place of understanding. In other words, um, American Jews need to understand that the kind of Judaism that has developed in Israel is an entirely different kind of Judaism than the Judaism that has arisen in America. Not better, not worse, not weaker, not stronger. I mean, it may be one of those things, but that's a matter of perspective. It's just very, very different. It's not at all synagogue-based. It's not denominational-based. Um, it's not primarily liturgy-based. It's much more nationalist. Uh, it's much more across the board, a sense of belonging and peoplehood and statehood and the boundaries between what's a religious moment and what's a national moment are almost impossible to 
to determine. In other words, when the siren goes off on Yom HaZikaron and everybody stops and stands still, right? I mean, is that a national moment or is that a religious moment? I mean, I think for a lot of Israelis, that question's the wrong question uh, because they feel that that's a matter of ritual. It's a matter of commandment. Um, it has a Jewish notion of silence, Vayidoma Haron. Um, in other words, is it a mitzvah? Well, is it a mitzvah from Mount Sinai? No. Is it a commandedness that comes from being part of this people? Absolutely, yes. And I think in Israel, what's what's religious and what's national and so forth has gotten very blurred. And there's some really interesting work that I'm sure you've spoken about with your community before. Works like, you know, that of Shmuel Rosner and others and talking about the new kind of Judaism that's emerging in Israel. It's not the religion of Arav Kook, but it's not the anti-religion of Bialik and, and Achad Ha'am, let's say, or, or, or Ben-Gurion more, more appropriately. There's something new brewing, and it's very cool, and American Jews need to understand that just because Israelis aren't voting with their feet for conservative or reform Judaism, for example, doesn't mean that they're embedded in orthodoxy. It means that they're exploring something very, very different. But what do Israelis need to understand? Israelis need to understand this. In 1915, President Woodrow Wilson's going around the country speaking at naturalization ceremonies. And he's saying to all these newly naturalized American citizens, it's part of the enormous immigration period of 1880 to 1920. And you know, we think of it as a Jewish immigration period because we're always talking about the Jews. But it wasn't. It was an immigration period of millions and millions and millions of people from all over Europe, a few million of whom happened to be Jews. We were a small piece of that picture. And Wilson, it's not today. Wilson is embracing immigration. He's saying that immigration is going to change the country. And he wants these people to be to be American. And he goes to these naturalization ceremonies and he says, you can't be Austrian-American and you can't be German-American and you can't be Spanish-American, Irish-American, etc. You got to be American. And if you're going to have that hyphen in there, then he says, in language that we wouldn't use today, you are no man worthy of standing under the stars and stripes. Okay, but that's 1915. Two years later comes the Balfour Declaration, in which the British government says, His Majesty's government looks with favor on the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and Europeans turn to American Jews and say, come join us. Come help us build this new country. But they have Wilson's ideas and words echoing in their ears, and they understand that the invitation to America is not going to be a free ticket of entry. It's going to have a cost with it, not an unfair cost, just a cost. And American Jews are in an impossible situation. And you could say negatively, that's why American Jews never got serious about Zionism. Or you could say much more, I think, charitably, that's why American Jews were always in a very difficult situation and tried very hard to support the building of a Jewish state in a different part of the world without ever casting any doubt on their dedication and devotion and commitment to America. And if to European Zionists, that looked like a tepid embrace of Zionism, okay, but they need to understand that what American Jews were dealing with was an opportunity unlike anything anybody else had ever seen. If Israelis could look at Americans who seemed to them to be too tepid in their embrace of Israel, or if they could understand the profound universalism that is at the very core of what makes America great and understand that that embrace of causes that Israelis might not like so much comes from the greatness of what America really is. And if Israelis could, American Jews could understand that Israel is the kind of a, a kind of a rebirth of Judaism in a way that's different from Europe and different from America, we should look at each other and say, in 1880, there were 275,000 Jews total between North America and Palestine. 
And that was 3% of the Jewish people. Today, North America plus Palestine, i.e. Israel, is 85%. We moved from 3% to 85% in the space of 140 years, which in Jewish terms is yesterday. Meaning both of these countries, both of these communities are brand new. They're both radical experiments. They're both incredibly successful, far beyond anyone's imagination. When my Safta came to Ellis Island in 1911, she did not imagine the Jewish world that you helped to lead, and she did not imagine the Jewish world that I grew up in Baltimore in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and all of that. Because in 1911, you know, what she wanted was not to be hungry and not to be afraid. America gave us much more than that. And by the same token, the people that went on a different boat when she went to America and landed in Jaffa or landed in Palestine, started draining swamps, had no reason to think that Tel Aviv was going to look the way that Tel Aviv looks today. Um, is America beset in the Jewish community by serious challenges? Very serious challenges. Is it vulnerable, possibly existentially, to those challenges? Yeah. And has Israel got very different, but also equally grave existential challenges? It does. So I think what we got to stop doing is stop lobbing pot shots at each other and saying, you're vulnerable because of that, and you're vulnerable because of that, but saying, look how amazingly successful you've been at that. Look how amazingly successful we've been at this. How can we teach each other? How can we learn from each other? How can we build a sense of shared Jewish destiny that has always been part of the Jewish people? Right. right. Wow. Um, so, given that we're in the month of we're in the month of Elul and we're reflecting on our own teshuvah, our own repentance and change, how might each of us uh, in, engage not only an individual but in a, in a collective teshuvah? That is to say, whether I'm far left on these issues or far right on these issues or I find myself as a centrist and I'm gonna passionately hold my views, but I'm also aware that I'm a part of the broader problem um, that, uh, that could actually contribute to us being at risk, the Jewish people at risk, the Israel project at risk, the diaspora community at risk. So wh what would this collective teshuvah look like today, this month? That's a beautiful question. I mean, um... You know, if the shofar, which we're blowing during Elul, is, is meant to really awaken us and haunt us, um, it should really haunt us. Because, look, you and I are speaking in September of 2019. Um, you and I are looking at an America that it does not look like anything like the America that we thought we were growing up in. I am tragically significantly older than you. But, um, you know, in the world in which I grew up, if somebody had said to me that there's going to be there's going to be people walking around, um, you know, um, Charlottesville holding torches and saying Jews will not replace us. When I was in high school in the 1970s, I would have said, you don't understand America. That just simply cannot happen in America. You don't get it. But of course, I would have been wrong. And that other person would have been right. Um, whatever one thinks of the president today. I mean, um, the, the anti-Jewishness that one sees on the left uh, with the Dyke March and the Women's March and the uh, opposition to Jewish symbols, forget Israeli symbols, just Jewish symbols, Stars of David. A Star of David is not an Israeli symbol, it's a Jewish symbol. Um, and what everyone sees on the right and the alt-right and the people that are shooting up synagogues are not the people on the left. They seem to be the people on the right. Um, there is, there's, there's a great deal to be worried about in America. And there's a great deal to be worried about in Israel. I don't only mean Israel's enemies from the outside, but the danger of the arising of a society that is too nationalist, that is too narrow, that God forbid could, be, could become racist. I mean, we all have communities that have deep flaws. Um, and we're supposed to approach God during this period with a sense of um, 
brokenness, right? I mean, right? my, my father and my mother, they've left me. Uh, I need the Ribbono Shalom to, to, to lift, to, to gather me in. In other words, I can't depend on anybody else anymore. There's got to be something bigger than me here that's going to kind of take me in. And I think that um, we need to understand that we are really all part of something much bigger than us. And Israeli or American and reform or, or orthodox or going to shul or, or sitting at home and streaming, um, most of us are going to hear a chauffeur. And, and most of us are going to hear that haunting sound. Um, and I think what we need to ask ourselves in this era of truva is, what are the ways in which I've been asleep? Perhaps out of the depth of passion of my conviction, it kind of put me to sleep about other things that I'm not thinking about enough that I need to be woken up to. And uh, if every Jew around the world spent Elul and then the first 10 days of Tishrei asking themselves, what do I need to get woken up to? Uh, then the last time that we hear that shofar at the end of, of Yom Kippur, hopefully, uh, we're going to have our differences. We're, we're always going to have our differences. And I think that's actually very good. But we will hopefully emerge from the Amim Noraim um, willing to um, embrace the brokenness that, that, that the Amim Noraim are supposed to bring. The brokenness meaning a kind of a lack of certainty. And uh, maybe that lack of certainty could open us up to the dignity and the vitality of communities that we don't always agree with, but that we have to recognize are part of the Jewish people. Very powerful, very powerful. So, uh, and so I, I see the need to, uh, to come together. I also see the need to call out both sides where there's hate um, and anti-Semitism, wherever we see it on, and the need to zoom out and cult- feel the gratitude of what it's like to have such a successful, in many ways, American Jewish community, to have Israeli sovereignty and the responsibility that emerges from that gratitude. Um, and I think the shofar is a, is a wonderful opportunity for us to reflect on everything that, that you just shared. So friends, uh, we stand divided. This is a, a very crucial book that names a lot of what we understand to be happening, but gives us the language, the statistics of what's happening and to, to cultivate the hope, but not a naive hope, but a vision forward of the work we need to do together to, uh, to chart a path forward. So Dr. Gordas, thank you very much for your time. Wishing you very much continued success in all your endeavors. You too.